Luke 24, 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. At 22, I moved to New York City to start a youth ministry um, serving impoverished immigrant families. And in those early days, I befriended a teacher who was an extraordinary man with a heart to know and to love the students and their families that were within his classroom. He invited me into those friendships and, and relationships that he had cultivated. So youth work for me looked a whole lot like attending family barbecues and visiting bodegas with food stamps in hand and uh, sitting in apartments with two to three bedrooms had eight to 10 family members living in them, sometimes mediating family disputes, which uh, had a 12-year-old being used as a language translator between me and those in the dispute. It was pure chaos and it was wild and beautiful in the way I imagine that Jesus' escapades probably were. And a couple of years in, we're meeting on Wednesday nights in a church basement that had somehow, this little ministry had grown into the largest youth ministry on the island of Manhattan, which sounds so much more impressive than it was. <laughs> Context is everything here. But all of that, every bit of it, was built on the relational generosity of this one teacher who taught me so much about what it means to love for the long haul. We were in this thing together, thick as thieves. And it was around that time that completely out of nowhere, for reasons that to this day I still don't completely understand, he just turned on me. And uh, he told everyone who'd listened that my character was poor, he questioned my motives, uh, he told those families and, and, and even the kids in those families, the kids in the youth ministry that I led, all of these uh, untrue things about my character, my motivations, uh, my, the ultimate ends that I had in mind. I had three separate meetings with him just to listen, just to try to say, explain to me uh, how I've wronged you. Please tell me what you're telling others. Uh, and I just wanted to make sense of it. And then uh, every time in one of those meetings, I was berated by him, not questioned, not even criticized, berated. And I was still plugging away at the same mission, but now I had these kids, these teenagers who had come to Christ in my youth ministry, coming up to me on Wednesday nights after youth group saying, Tyler, this teacher told me this about you. Is that true? And I didn't sleep through the night for months because he was like a brother. This was a friend who had driven cross country with a couple of those kids in tow just to attend mine and Kirsten's wedding. It was someone who had an open door policy in my home and I had an open door policy in his and then one day he just changed his mind about me. And I wasn't sure how to make sense of it and so I'd wake up in the middle of the night and just lay there with his accusations playing through my mind like a highlight reel. Is he right? Is that who I am? And if it's true, then how do I fix it? And what am I supposed to say to these kids? How do I repair something that's been broken when I don't even know how it broke in the first place? And how do I correct misconceptions without doing back to him in the minds of these kids the same thing he's doing to me? That's not fair to anyone. So I, I carried this quietly, not wanting to slander him, but also personally unable to stand up under the weight of it. And then. A mentor of mine, Caleb, happened to hear about this situation through a third party and, and he did not call or, or ask what happened. He didn't ask how I was doing or how the ministry was navigating this conflict. He just sent me a text that said, hey man, I need to buy you lunch today. Can you meet me? And that's how I ended up in this crowded spot on 23rd Street just off Madison Square Park. And I'm sitting down at this table in the middle of this diner and he just opens up a Bible and sets it out there on the table and says, bow your head. 
And he lays his, hands, or his hand on my back and he just sits next to me at this lunch counter and, and he just begins to read the prayers of David, the Psalms over me. And after each one say, Tyler, this is who you are. This is who you are. And then he started to say aloud the accusations that this teacher had said about me to anyone who would listen. And then right after the accusation, he would read another line from David's prayer and say, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. And there's a name for that, for what Caleb was doing with me over lunch that day. Blessing. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. What exactly is Jesus doing while he's lifting up his hands? And why did it fill the disciples with joy? Because before blessing, I mean, these are our disciples hiding out in an upper room fearing for their lives. Uh, they're not thinking about starting a revolution. They're thinking uh, about not getting arrested, tried, and executed like the rabbi was. Then after this blessing, they're still fugitives hiding out in a crowded upper room. He's going away and promising to send his spirit, but the absence starts today, and the spirit's coming at some undetermined time in the future, and all they've got to do in the meantime is wait and pray. But now human fear has ballooned in their imaginations uh, and been replaced instead by joy. So what exactly did Jesus do? What did he say? And why did it work? What is blessing? I mean, why was it so important to Jacob and Esau, which one of them received their father's blessing? What was it that got sold for a gamey stew that couldn't be given back? And why was the fatherly blessing of Isaac so important for Joseph, who had climbed the corporate ladder to the point that he was serving as the highest level of management for the leader of the free world? Why was the blessing of his unaccomplished father more important than all that accomplishment? And why did God give the first priest, Aaron, a blessing to speak verbatim over the Israelite people at particular moments every year? A blessing to pass on then to all the priests that would come after him. See, if we're going to live in this world as our true selves, we've gotta know the answers to those questions. We've gotta understand with and wrestle with what's tied into this ancient concept of blessing. Because today we use the word blessing in only three contexts that I can think of. One is when someone sneezes. The other is ironically on social media, right? Hashtag blessed, that kind of thing. And then finally, in the American South, sometimes after gossiping about someone, you can somehow cover over it and make it all okay with the simple phrase, Bless her heart, right? <laughs> so why was blessing such a big deal back then and why isn't it now? Is this just some kind of old-fashioned religious superstition that we grew out of or is there something more here? Dietrich Bonhoeffer described it this way, blessing is the visible, perceptible, effective proximity of God. It is the felt experience of God's presence in my everyday life, over dinner with friends and in an interaction with a coworker, and maybe even through a warm glance from a stranger. See, we're nearing the end of this teaching series and practice that we've titled The True and False Self, and it's all about the biblical conflict that rages invisibly internally within us, that battle over our individual identity and all of its effects and its implications, and up for today is the mysterious and profound concept of blessing. And we wanna talk about blessing along three lines, understanding blessing, receiving blessing, and becoming Blessing, that's a map of where we're headed. And you're gonna need a map because we are going to venture through some biblical deep weeds together today. And we need this map so that we can keep on track together in all the places that we're gonna go. You're also gonna need a Bible today for sure. So make sure you take that Bible out that you've got and turn it to Genesis chapter one. That's page one, if you're looking for where to find it. Now, I want you to follow along with me in a Bible made of paper because I want you to be able to see with your own hands that I'm not just cherry picking a verse or two here, but that blessing is a concept that goes from cover to cover in the biblical story. So we're gonna begin with understanding blessing. 
And we wanna tell the story of blessing along two lines, both historically and personally, because blessing is a biblical theme, but it's also a personal theme, and understanding it requires that we recognize both. So first, understanding blessing historically, and this brings us to Genesis. The Bible begins with God creating a world out of nothing and then blessing all that world's creatures. The first uh, appearance of blessing in our Bibles is in Genesis chapter one, verse 22, when speaking over all of the creatures prior to creating man and woman, God says, or we read, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in, in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. So God's blessing, originally given to all animal created life, is, is about multiplication of that life. God's saying, take this life that I've given you and multiply and grow it until every square inch of the world is covered in this life. The next appearance of the same word comes after God creates people. Just skip down to verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and on every living creature that moves along the ground. So this blessing is identical to the previous one, only it comes with a part two. Rule over. God blesses humanity to both receive his blessing and to become a blessing. You see, that's all that's tied up in this command to rule. It's not a power-hungry, dictatorial sort of rule. This is an image of God sort of rule. He's saying, rule over the world by the same generosity and freedom and blessing by which I have ruled over you. People are blessed to become a blessing. Hold on to that. Conflict then enters the story when people try to steal a gift. They tried to get God's blessing, which was freely given apart from God. A deceiver plants a seed in their imagination. Adam and Eve reach for that fruit from that one tree, representing human free will. And an attempt to get blessing apart from God results in blessings opposite, a curse. The word blessing appears twice to us in Genesis 1. The word curse appears twice to us in Genesis 3. First, God curses the serpent, the deceiver, who spun the web that became this lie in the imaginations of Adam and Eve. But when God curses the serpent, he also makes a promise, and that is to come as a created being, as a man or woman, to crush the serpent's head. Second, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Now the language here is important. God actively curses the deceiver, but to people, God simply explains the consequences of their rebellion. The ground, the whole of creation, every square inch that I blessed has now been infected by a curse. And this curse isn't some hocus pocus kind of witchcraft spell that God is casting on creation. This curse is more God reluctantly allowing people to have what they've freely chosen. And when we try to, to get God's free blessing by our own means, it is not that blessing that we multiply. Instead, it's this curse that we multiply. It's the multiplication of pain and suffering and isolation and death. A curse is a rejection of blessing. It's an attempt to earn what I was freely given. And we all live under the curse of sin. We have inherited it and we multiply it. We've all inherited this curse, most clearly seen in Exodus 34, six and seven. This is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellious, rebellion and sin. That's where most people stop reading because we think that's the end of the good part. The good part keeps going though, but it doesn't sound like the good part at first. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generations. I love the God who's compassionate and generous and mild-tempered and forgiving. But did anyone catch that bit about God punishing kids? What is that all about? I told you, deep weeds. What does this mean? Well, we know for sure that it doesn't mean that God punishes a kid for his mom's sin because later Moses says the exact opposite of what he seems to say here. This is Deuteronomy 24. 
parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. And that's not just Moses playing fast and loose with God's original command, because later when Jesus shows up, he says, or his disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned. In other words, if that's the question you're asking, you're barking up the wrong tree. So we're not dealing with a child abusing God, we're dealing with a complex translation here. Uh, translation between languages is less than an exact science when you're just trying to translate English into Spanish. Much less when you're trying to take an ancient language and translate it across cultures and centuries all the way into modern English today. So now that we know what God isn't saying, we still have the question before us, well, what exactly is God saying in the second portion of Exodus 34, and why is that good news? He's saying three things. First, he's saying that this curse has generational consequences. So if your mother was an abusive alcoholic, that profoundly affects who you become. Not in a way that you can't overcome, but definitely in a way that you can't deny. Or if your dad walks out on your family, you suffered for that. And it wasn't because God willed that suffering or because you did something wrong, it's because this curse multiplies, just like blessing was meant to. And so all of us are born into families and then live with unique versions of family dysfunction and family secrets and family sin. This curse is passed on through generations. Secondly, it means this, that this curse runs in the family. You and I are more susceptible to the patterns of sin that run in our family. That's not just an omen, it's, it's a caution. Substance abuse, infidelity, and divorce have all been statistically proven to run in the family apart from a reputable scientific or medical cause for why those run in a family. Children of, of abusive parents often vow to never become like their abuser, but we know that they're statistically more likely to become abusive parents. Children of alcoholic parents see the self-destruction that can be wreaked just through reaching for a bottle, and yet they are also more likely to uh, have that same form of self-destruction in their own lives. And there are catastrophic examples like those, but of course there's much more subtle examples of the same thing, like your inability to be alone, or the way that you either bury anger or explode in rage with anger, or the tendency that you may carry to prioritize productivity over people. Generational sin is what this whole thing is typically called. The curse runs in the family. And third, it means this, that God promises to run down the curse until it's completely gone. Because this curse is passed along generational lines, God is committed to the long, slow work of eradicating it. But how? How does God plan to get rid of this thing? Look back at verse six. By compassion, grace, love, faithfulness and ultimately forgiveness that won't stop until every last trace of the curse is gone. See, this isn't about punishment. It's an acknowledgement that the curse that you and I have inherited, it runs through our generations. And it's a promise of the way God deals with it. We've all inherited the curse, but unfortunately we're more than just victims. We're also perpetrators. We all multiply the same curse. We all make personal choices. We rebel in personal ways that we can't fix or take back. The forgiveness of God is real. It's real enough to wash clean everything I've ever done and everything that I ever will do, but the consequences of my choices are just as real. Like if I lose my temper in an argument with my wife and in a moment of rage I say something out of emotion, then God will forgive me for that if I pray and ask his forgiveness, but that doesn't just mend the relational breach that I've wrought through what I said immediately. There's still the long and slow work of repairing the tears that the consequences of my sin have wreaked relationally in the world that I live in. God is forgiving, but sin is not. And the forgiveness of God and the collateral damage of sin coexist. They coexist in the same lives and they coexist in the world all around us. So we all live under the curse of sin. We've inherited it through the generations before us and we chose it for ourselves through personal rebellion, big and small. And it's a curse that God promises to deal with. So if you will, turn ahead with me now to Genesis chapter 22. And just to give you a heads up from here, we're gonna jump all the way to Galatians 3. 
So if you wanted to go ahead and start turning and meet me there in a minute, you're welcome to. But Genesis chapter 22, this is how God deals with the curse. It brings us to Abraham and Sarah. I'm gonna begin reading in verse 17. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So how does God deal with a curse that's this far reaching? He restores the original blessing to a cursed people. A curse is a rejection of blessing. It's an attempt to earn a blessing that I could only be given. Blessing is to receive what I could never earn, but am freely given. So God blessed Adam and Eve to both receive his blessing and become a blessing to the world. And then God looks at a cursed, corrupted creation and just re-ups on the original plan. He selects another couple, Abraham and Sarah, to become a blessing. God blesses them to become a blessing. And it's through this family, Israel, that I will come myself as one who defeats the deceiver, who crushes the serpent's head. Now, jump ahead all the way to Galatians 3. This brings us to Jesus. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. So one of the things that Jesus is doing on the cross is this, he's removing the curse from your life, taking it on himself, and then blessing your life with the blessing he was given from God. In Exodus 34, that tricky passage about the way the curse is passed down family lines, the Hebrew word for forgiving is nasa, which means to lift up, to carry, to take away. Nasa is what's happening on the cross. Jesus is being lifted up to carry the weight of the curse and to take it away. Why? To create a new line of humanity that walks in the blessing of God, not the curse of sin. So how does God deal with the curse? Well remember, by compassion, grace, love, faithfulness and forgiveness that will not stop until every last trace of it is gone, just like he promised. Jesus defeats the curse by becoming a curse. He crushes the head of the serpent by releasing an unstoppable blessing in a crushed creation or cursed creation through resurrection. But that's not all he does. Just keep reading in Galatians 3, picking up right where we left off. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This promised deposit of blessing, the Holy Spirit was then given on the day of Pentecost and the church was born. And that's when this blessing went beyond Israel to the Gentiles, to every nation, tribe, and tongue through the gift of the Holy Spirit. God blessed Abraham and Sarah to grow into a blessed nation that would become a blessing to the entire world. Mission accomplished. That's history. That's the historical story. But this is a whole lot more than just a historical story. It's equally a personal story. So we also need to understand blessing personally. And if we're gonna understand blessing on a personal level, we first have to understand cursing on a personal level. Because just in this room, many of you probably had a personal memory come to mind when I described the the cursing spoken over me by that teacher, then you did the blessing spoken over me by Caleb in response. Everyone I've ever met is more familiar with cursing than they are with blessing. And this curse, it comes in many forms and by many names, but it can be summarized as wounds, lies, idols, and addictions. This is the the curse that lives within each of us. First, wounds, they're experiences that we have that often hurt us in a way that doesn't heal. Wounds haunt us and we live from them, whether we want to or not. It's me lying awake at 3 a.m. with accusations, scenes of accusation replaying in my imagination because I can't simply dismiss them and move on from them. That's a wound and I've got mine and you've got yours. And then there's lies, lies define us. Lies are curses that become origin points that we live from, that we reference back to. I can still remember the first day of fourth grade when uh, I had Miss Smith as my teacher and I'm in Miss Smith's class and she's calling roll on the first day of school and she says, Tyler Staten, Staten, 
are you Josh's brother? Oh, I love Josh. She had had him two years ago in the same class. I love Josh. I'm so excited to have another Staten in the class. By that afternoon, I had commandeered her rolly chair and I was using it as a scooter to circle the classroom when she wasn't looking. And she looked up and saw me from the opposite side of the room and screamed across the classroom, you are nothing like your brother. And I can still remember it. The exact way she said it, the tone in her voice, the way that I felt in that moment as a fourth grader. And I lived a whole lot of my adolescent life in some sense or another in a private rebellion against being identified with my older brother. I created an identity for myself that, that opposed who he seemed to be. I lived as a reaction, a reaction to what? To a lie that was spoken over me that came to define me. And then there's idols. Idols are false attempts to heal a lie. They're misguided efforts to find some kind of antidote for the way the lie makes me feel. And sex and success are not the only idols of our time, but they are the most obvious idols of our time. Both of them are romanticized, not for what they are, but for the blessing that they are, can supposedly provide. So I have a longing for companionship or desirability or intimacy, and then I channel that into promiscuity, which promises to cure it, but then only deepens the original feeling that I had that I was trying to cure in the first place. And the same thing goes for success. If I get this promotion, then I'll feel like a success, like my life is going somewhere, like I'm on the right track and that I matter. And then you work so hard and you get that promotion, and it works, you feel like you matter. And you love to casually weave in your new uh, position over dinner conversation and the way that, that it feels now to relate to peers that, that used to be managers and the way that you feel that extra pep in your step as you walk into the office, but that sense of value is it's expiring the very moment you get it. It's like buying the spinach from Trader Joe's. Like, <laughs> it looks good and it's cheap, but if you don't eat it within 48 hours, it's turning into a soup in your fridge. <laughs> See, if you acquire value by a lie, you're feeding the ego, but you're starving the soul. And then you become a slave to that pattern. More achievement is required to keep you feeling like you matter. A wound soothed by a lie becomes an addiction. An addiction is an idol that's allowed to rule. It's a substance or pornography or workaholism. It's some good desire misdirected. It's bent in the same way enough times that it owns me now. So here's the story, the historic and the personal story. You are cursed, and so am I. We are innocent victims who have inherited it and we're guilty perpetrators who multiply it. And if you are in Christ, you are blessed, and so am I. He became a curse to bless us. Curse, this is the biblical word for the external force that puffs up the false self, that convinces me that life is best lived behind a pair of fig leaves. Bless, that's the biblical word for the external force that awakens the true self, that fills me with the courage to come out of hiding, to live freely and fully the life that God has given me to live, the identity that he's called me, the only one who knows me well enough to tell me what my name is. Blessing and cursing are both distributed by the same means, by seeing, speaking, and sacrificing. This is the summary of Ronald Rollheiser. You see, blessing is introduced at creation when God saw that it was good. That's repeated after every one of the seven days. God speaks creation into being, speaks blessing over Adam and Eve, speaks blessing over Abraham and Sarah. Later, he will speak blessing over Jesus, and Jesus' memory ends by lifting up his hands and speaking blessing over the disciples. Ultimately, blessing is sacrificial. Jesus became a curse in order to release blessing. And cursing, though, it happens in exactly the same way. Eve saw that the tree was good for fruit and desirable for gaining wisdom, and so she plucked the fruit that infected the whole world. The serpent spoke a lie, and deception led to a curse. The serpent promised what God promised, blessing, only a way to get blessing that didn't involve sacrifice. It's a distortion of what love is. 
And so blessing and cursing are both distributed the same way, through seeing, speaking, and sacrificing. And if we're gonna move beyond just understanding this cosmic story of blessing and cursing to receiving it personally in a way that redefines me and the story that I'm living in today, then we're gonna have to tackle seeing, speaking, and sacrificing. So we receive blessing first by seeing or being seen by God. Every time I take my kids to the playground, it always goes the same way. Watch me, Dad, watch me. Dad, watch me over here, Dad, watch me. Dad, 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 watch me. <laughs> See, from childhood, we have this longing to be seen. Man, I, I took this really strong melatonin to go to bed last night. I gotta be honest, it's still hanging around and I'm trying to come out of it. From childhood, we have this longing to be noticed, to be seen, and we're explicit about it. We're unashamed with it. And as a father, one of the greatest ways that I can bless my kids is just to see them. Wow, buddy. You did every one of the monkey bars? That was amazing. And as a father, one of the most subtle but very real ways I can curse my children is to look down and scroll through my phone screen while they're pining for my attention. See, we don't grow out of this need to be seen. We, we feel it again every time we walk into a crowded party alone and feel out of place until suddenly we see that one familiar face across the room who just by an expression is able to say, I'm so glad that you're here. And it's then that, that suddenly belonging swallows up insecurity. Sometimes the greatest obstacle to receiving God's blessing is the way that we're seen by others. Other times it's the way that we see ourselves. The first name given to God in the Bible is El Roy, the God who sees. It's Hagar, an impoverished minority single mother who's been abandoned and forgotten who discovers there in the midst of her pain a God who sees. And to be seen by God is to be utterly transformed from the inside out. It's one thing to understand that God blesses in place of cursing. It's quite another thing to be seen by God and to be blessed right in the place that I was cursed. Secondly, we receive blessing by speaking or hearing the voice of God speaking over us. There are three distinct occasions in the scriptures when we get to hear the Father's audible voice speak over Jesus. That's at his baptism, his transfiguration, and in the temple during the final week. Now surely, of all the biblical revelation, these three must be standout occurrences, right? The three times that we get to eavesdrop on the conversation of the Trinity, that we get to hear the way that the Father talks to the Son, these must be exponentially important in forming our opinion about who God is and what it is to relate to him, right? Well, here's those three messages at Jesus' baptism. You are my Son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. At the mountaintop in the transfiguration, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And then in the temple, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. In context, it's you're already bringing me glory, son. Not in some future aspiration, but in who you are right now. Wouldn't it have made sense if God was gonna speak audibly, if he used his voice a little bit more productively than this? Like to, to rebuke the corrupt priests or the Roman oppressors, to, to call people to repent, to explain the meaning of life, to clear up some theological question? Like is it free will or predestination, God? Is Tupac alive out there on a Caribbean island or is he really gone? When God spoke loudly enough for his, to his son, for the whole world to hear him, he only ever had one message. I love you and I'm proud of you. Separated in part, but dreaming of reuniting, the father's one phone call to his son is I love you and I'm proud of you. The ministry of Jesus began and ended by receiving blessing, the, the spoken words of God. Hebrews then tells us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word over you and me. The English word blessing in the Old Testament is the Hebrew barak, which means to speak the intention of God. In the New Testament, it's the Greek eulogia, which means to speak larger or well of, to speak the intention of God on someone. 
That's what Caleb was doing with me at a diner on 23rd Street. He was speaking the intention of God over me. Lastly, we receive blessing by sacrificing when someone gives their lives away. At the Last Supper, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. That's Matthew 26. So at the last meal that he ate before going to the cross, when Jesus broke bread representing his body and he poured wine representing his shed blood, he was giving a blessing. In fact, this English word thanks in Matthew 26, he gave thanks, is the same ancient Greek word for blessing, translated blessing elsewhere in the scriptures. So another way to read the same passage is, after he had blessed it, Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body. So here is the blessing, Jesus tells them, it's my broken body and my shed blood. My sacrifice is your blessing. One of the, or maybe the only blessing that, that is still around in our culture today, the only formal blessing, and it's not always around, but it's sometimes around, is asking a father for his daughter's hand in marriage. Sir, I'm here to ask you for your and your wife's blessing. Now, of course, there is a weird patriarchal version of this, but there's also a really beautiful, uh, rightly understood version of this when asking for a blessing isn't asking a dad to sign over the rights of his child in some possessive way, it's asking him to welcome you into his family. Because of course marriage is about love between two people but it drags in these generations along with it, right? So I've got personal experience with asking for that kind of blessing and I'll never forget that experience because I was way more nervous about it than I was the proposal itself. I flew down to Nashville secretly, and uh, he picked me up from the airport. And I was so nervous about asking my future father-in-law for his daughter's hand in marriage that I just asked him in the car before we got to the restaurant. <laughs> I was just squirming in the passenger seat. I, I was overanalyzing the whole situation, so I was like, all right, Kurt, <laughs> here's why I came. And he was like, Oh, that's what you wanted to ask me about. Hmm. And then he changed the subject. <laughs> it was masterful play, mind games. He immediately took the upper hand. So then I'm just waiting for him to bring the whole thing back up and we get to this burrito place and of course the place is packed. And so we're it's crammed into this little table with other tables right next to us and I'm thinking, great. Every, these people on either side are gonna hear every word of this really awkward conversation and immediately are gonna be like, hmm? You know? <laughs> and we sit down to eat and he, he does this. He says, Tyler, let's pray. And then extends both hands across the table and so I'm going. <laughs> it was the one time, I think the only time to this day I've ever held both of his hands at the same time. Maybe both of any man's hands at the same time. And it's laughable in a way, but, but also I get it a little bit more now. Because to me, I'm thinking, I gotta get this thing over with. And he's thinking, this is holy. It's Christ-like. Because I was asking for his blessing. I was asking him to entrust what he values most in this world to my care. I was asking him to raise a daughter, to love her and to protect her and to sacrifice for her and to delight in her and then to entrust her care to me, some kid too squirrely to ask at the restaurant. I was asking him to do the unthinkable and to do it with joy and delight and good intention. I was asking him to be like Jesus. John 15, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Here's the supreme kind of love, friends. It's giving your life away so that someone else can have more life. There is no higher blessing than giving your life away, offering some part of yourself in love to some undeserving person. This is one of the reasons I can stand in front of you and say, John Mark is one of my greatest friends in the whole world because I've walked this journey with him in the last year where he's given some of his life away so that I could have more life and we could have more life. It's why to, to, to say goodbye well is to be like Jesus. It's to bless. So here's the blessing delivered in Jesus. I see you. I call you beloved. I give my life. Uh, the blessing Jesus received from the Father, he then speaks over you and me. 
and you become a blessing by receiving that blessing. That's the only way you do it. Until you know in the core of your being that you are blessed, you will spread the curse. But the natural response to to blessing received is blessing shared. As soon as we get it, we can't help but give it away if we've really received it. And so finally, that's where this lands, become blessing. Back to Genesis 22, where this whole redemption blessing started. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. That's what God said to Abraham. He blessed him to become a blessing. And we become blessing the same way that we receive it, by seeing, speaking, and sacrificing. So first, we bless others by seeing others. Uh, We become a blessing as we learn to be a welcoming community Uh, because we bless or we curse others by the way that we welcome them in or don't. So just think about the, the felt experience again of walking into a party. There's a massive difference between, hey, so good to see you, I'm so glad you're here, and everyone in their little conversation clusters and you're lost out there at sea. Right, and every cluster is a life raft that you're trying to get to and you just got to get on one of these things. One of those experiences uh, brings about your true self, your belonging, your security, and one of those experiences brings about your false self, your insecurity, and your hiding. See, by the way you welcome someone, you either increase their dignity or you give rise to their insecurity. You draw forth the Imago Dei or you draw forth the curse. That happens every single time someone walks into this church on a Sunday new or they arrive at your community, or you bump into someone from this church on the sidewalk and decide whether to say hi and learn their name or just avert your eyes and pretend you didn't see them. If you feel comfortable in this church, that's power. Comfort is currency in a community. It's power, it's the power to bless or the power to curse. And how you use power in a community is founded on a sacrificial savior. It's founded on a suffering king, give it away. Spend it on others and determine not to measure the worth of that investment later. Bless people and keep on blessing them regardless of the results. What's blessing like? It's like this, hey, there's an open seat next to me. I wanna introduce you to Amy. Do you have plans after this? Do you have lunch today? You should check out my community. I would love to, to invite you deeper in. Do you want to be divinely broken for the city of Portland? then start simply just by noticing people, really seeing them. The great joy of my life is walking around this city, praying with my eyes open. That's what prayer walking is. It's just praying with your eyes open. Because we tend to pass our days in a blur of activity and plans and demands that that left on its own will breed self-centeredness within us. But when you prayer walk, you see You see the Postmates guy making ends meet by delivering food on a bike in the rain. And you see the school kids doing whatever it takes to get each other's attention. And you see your coworker that's banking everything on their supervisor's response to this next presentation, knowing that this will never fulfill them regardless of how it goes. And you see your neighbor whose home reeks of weed 24 seven because they've never been captured by a bigger dream than escaping into a high for an hour or two. See, all those are unique people created in the image of God on whom he desires to pour out his blessing. Can you imagine the heart of God over our city? The God who leaves the 99 to go after the one? Uh, We're talking about the God who sacrificed everything, who was lifted up to become a curse, also that he could give you and me every spiritual blessing in Christ. So at Bridgetown Church, every teaching comes alive in community through practice. We believe that church happens around a stage here on Sundays and that church happens around a table midweek and both are essential ingredients of becoming a disciple of Jesus. So as our practices for the coming weeks, first we're going to bless one another. That's this week. And that's all about blessing within the church family. And then we're going to prayer walk our city That's about becoming a blessing to our city, asking God to open our eyes, that that he might then move our hands and feet in response to seeing our city like he sees it. More on that's coming at the Justice Summit. See you there. The community guide for blessing is up right now at bridgetown.church slash guides. Secondly, we become a blessing by speaking. A school in the UK conducted the social experiment on the power of uh, affirmation 
where they held a mock IQ test and then they shared the results of that publicly. Now every test score that they shared was totally fabricated, it was completely arbitrary. And yet as they tracked those results, those who were given the top scores all saw significant academic improvement in the following year. Isn't that fascinating? That simply by being told they were smart, the performance of every last one of those kids improved. Brennan Manning says to affirm a person is to see the good in them that they cannot see in themselves and repeat it in spite of appearances to the contrary. So blessing is a relational gift and that means that it is given and received through speech, not thoughts. You gotta say the good things that run through your mind about someone else for it to become blessing. And we tend to think way more good things than we actually say with our lips. And that's because saying it makes me vulnerable. Me, the blessing giver, when I put my thoughts into spoken words, suddenly I become vulnerable. But thought blessing is passive and nearly powerless. Spoken blessing, though, is active and as powerful as anything in the world. When I was in college, I never would have imagined becoming the pastor of a church. And then another pastor a few years older than me named Brian Jones said, hey Tyler, I've been invited to speak at this small church thing, but I'm not able to make it. So I, I gave them your name and told them you could speak in my place. Is that all right with you? And I was like, sure, I guess, man. Then he drove me to the thing, so I knew that he could in fact make it. And he sat there while I preached and then he took me out to dinner afterwards and he sat across from me in this booth and, and he said to me, Tyler, you have the spiritual gift of teaching. And he sat there and he spoke particular affirmations over my life and it's changed the ent entire trajectory of where I was going. You see, as the church, we should be calling out the gifts and future that we see in one another because there's unrealized gifts all over this congregation and there are redemptive futures waiting to happen on the other side of vulnerable spoken blessing all over this congregation. You recognizing God's gifting and call on someone else and then speaking it out loud is a participation in the multiplication of the blessing work of Jesus. And the other side of the coin is equally just as true. James three says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. What does that mean for the way that you respond to your coworkers, or for your email etiquette, or for the tone that you take with your spouse, or your kids, or your roommate, or your mom? What does it mean for the story that you tell at someone else's expense? There's this picture that hangs on the wall right next to my family dinner table, and it's got a quote in it. It's a quote from Augustine because he kept the same picture famously at the center of his own dining room table with this written on it. Whoever thinks that he is able to nibble at the life of absent friends must know that he is unworthy of this table. See, it's just a way of saying words matter. With our words, we participate in blessing or we are complicit in the spread of the curse. And then finally, and most profoundly, there's sacrifice. We become a blessing by giving our life away for others. I think of it as absorbing the cost. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He's absorbing the cost, taking on the curse of sin, mine and yours, including the sins that we never see or acknowledge. Sometimes we bless others by speaking, other times we bless others by not speaking. It's that offense that I've got every right to bring up, but I choose just to absorb instead. It's the amazing story that would crush around this table, but it's a story at someone else's expense, and so I keep my mouth shut. And as an important caveat, blessing can happen by absorbing the cost, but enabling might happen the same way, so there's definitely discernment required here. But done right, sacrifice produces beauty. Carlo Corretto says that mercy is the highest form of love. That when we have cause to hold something against someone else, to pin them down by their fault or their worst moment and instead forgive, that love is never more costly than that. And it's never more powerful than that. 
that mercy, when it's not only received but when it's given away, is the most intimate experience with God, we get this side of eternity. And so what if, when you are wronged, it isn't always an invitation to, to fight, but sometimes it's an invitation to image God, to become like him, and in the process to increasingly become your true self. You see, to bless someone fully is to in some way sacrifice. It's to lay down my life for the other. It's to in some way die for him or her. And Jesus revealed this great mystery to us on the cross that meaning is tied to sacrifice. And at the end of your life, you're gonna look back fondly on moments of bliss. You're gonna remember that amazing vacation and, and your surprise 40th birthday but the memories that you're gonna hold most dearly, they're gonna be the sacrificial ones, uh, the ways that you loved, that required that you laid down your life for another. Ronald Rollheiser says this, the mark of a deeply mature man or woman, the mark of a very mature disciple of Jesus, the mark of someone truly giving his or her life away is this, he or she is a person who blesses others and blesses the world just as God does and just as Jesus did. When we act like God, we get to feel like God. So I wanna to close today just by offering a blessing for you to receive. I'll never forget when I got to sit with Barry, a pastoral hero of mine, at this point in his late 80s, and he laid both of his hands on my head and he prayed blessing over my life. And he did it with a, a trembling, quieted voice and quaking, shaking hands the way that an old man often speaks and moves. And I was both uh, receiving the blessing and I was remembering that, that everyone who gets to the blessing of living fully also gets seen last at their weakest. And Barry was an amazing pastor, he's an eloquent and charismatic teacher, but my enduring memory of him is not of his eloquence or his gifting or his strength. It was when he was in the midst of frailty, trembling hands and a quaking voice. And in the last memory of every old man, they are seen like that, at their weakest. Now biblically and traditionally, this is when a blessing was given. When someone was in old age, a man or woman at their frailest, then most ready to give blessing away. Blessing, in its most formal sense, comes at that precise moment when every crack and flaw in a person is seen most visibly. And that's a bit of a bummer for the blessing giver because you'd really like to be seen last at your best, right? But it's perfect for the blessing receiver because it's a way that we can know for sure, unequivocally, that every good thing that's come through this person to us has come because they're nothing more than a jar of clay who's filled with all-surpassing power. They're nothing more than one who's received blessing, and therefore that's all they can give away. <laughs>